Coming at you from Verge headquarters in Indianapolis, I'm Matt Hunkler, and this is Powder Keg Igniting Startups, episode 18. And today, I'm talking with a virologist. Yes, his media companies collectively do 50 million visits per month. And he's not an old guy. He's, he's about my age, which is pretty impressive that he's created this media empire. But all of it started when he was just 12 years old. There's two strategies that I consider to be by far the two most important strategies in negotiation. The first one is always ask for more than you expect to get. Most people are terrible negotiators because they are just too um, afraid of what will happen if they ask for more. Um, so that's one. And the second one is that you have to make sure that you always project walk away power. The second that the other person knows that you can't walk away, you're done. Like you're completely done from a negotiation perspective. So uh, you have to make sure that even if you can't walk away, that they don't know that. That's Emerson Sparks, the founder and CEO of Dose, which is a media company that includes many different properties online, including Dose.com and OMGFacts.com. You probably have seen these in your Facebook feed or in your Twitter feed because they create amazingly engaging content. And that is probably Emerson's superpower, figuring out virality. What do people want and what do people want to share? He's created amazing brands and we talk about that a lot today on the podcast, as well as some of the lessons learned starting up from the age of 12. That journey and the lessons learned along the way coming up on Powder Keg Igniting Startups, where each week we share the untold stories of innovation, leadership, and technology beyond Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and I'm the founder and CEO of Verge, which is a network of local communities with global reach for tech entrepreneurs, investors, and top talent outside of Silicon Valley. And as my team and I have grown Verge over the past seven years, we've hosted more than a thousand entrepreneurs at our events around the world. Those founders have gone on to raise more than $500 million in capital collectively, and they're disrupting industries, creating wealth, and changing the world. That's why we started this podcast. Each guest has their own powder keg full of raw skills and talents that's ignited their startups and fueled their growth. These are their stories. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Hunkler, that's H-U-N-C-K-L-E-R, and let me know how Verge and Powder Keg and I can help you with your entrepreneurial journey. In the meantime, please make sure you subscribe to the Powder Keg wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on SoundCloud, Stitcher, all the major podcast outlets, including, of course, iTunes. You can find us on iTunes using our handy link, powderkeg.co slash iTunes. And using that link, you can subscribe, make sure you don't miss a single episode, not a single conversation that we have here. And I just want to give a huge shout out really quick to all of you powder keggists out there who have already left us a review. It's your feedback and sharing that helps us reach so many more people. And this community that we're growing is so inspiring. It's what keeps me coming back here every single day, making sure we're bringing the best guests to you with every episode. Thank you. Powder Keg is brought to you by Developer Town, and Developer Town helps enterprise companies move like a startup. I've seen it firsthand. Corporate innovators often work with Developer Town to explore software solutions that support their core business needs. By leveraging their years of experience working with startups, Developer Town is able to help companies better understand the viability of potential software solutions and quickly bring them to market. DeveloperTown has created a proven sprint-to-market process so large enterprises can move like a startup. Find out more at developertown.com slash powderkeg. That's developertown.com slash powderkeg. DeveloperTown, start something. 
Emerson Sparts is my guest today. Again, he's the founder and CEO of Dose, which is a media company that drives 50 million monthly users to its web properties. And as I mentioned previously, Emerson started his first company at age 12. And you know what it was? It was actually a Harry Potter fan site, which is just amazing. And it was called MuggleNet. But that was sort of the precursor to what he has created now with his empire at Dose. And what I love about this conversation is, of course, we talk about virality, what makes content good, what makes it shareable. Um, but we also talk about his journey as an entrepreneur and some of the superpowers he's developed, including probably the most important superpower of all, which is learning how to learn. There's so many good lessons to be had here. I learned a ton just having this conversation with Emerson. I know you will too. So let's set this thing off. Well, hey, I want to jump right into this because uh, I'm really excited to touch base uh, since the launch of Dose. You know, I've, I've followed from afar, uh, but I know that there's a lot of strategic uh, decisions made uh, in kind of doing the rebrand to Dose and putting everything behind that brand. Um, but could you give me just... Uh, as a quick way of jumping in here, sort of your 30-second elevator pitch on what Dose is and what kind of scale you guys have right now? Absolutely. <clears throat> Dose is one of the world's fastest-growing digital media companies. Our content informs, entertains, and inspires uh, roughly 200 million people every month. We target a younger audience, um, under 30, is kind of our, our sweet spot, so young millennials and Generation Z. And our mission is to build a media company that aims higher than entertainment alone and introduces fresh ideas, knowledge, and perspectives. It's almost like you, uh, you were prepared for that one. I, you have no idea how many times I've said that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I can probably guess. Emerson, I would love to jump in and learn a little bit more about Dose. But actually, you know, since you and I had a chance to collaborate uh, back when I was at Social Reactor and, and you're doing some of the things with OMG Facts, I always kind of wondered how you got to where you are. And of course, read your bios, uh, watched some of your interviews and, and talks that you've given. Um, but one of the things I would love to explore is sort of your journey to there, um, because I've always been curious, you know, how you went from a middle school dropout to uh, running what is now impacting 200 million people every month. What was that decision back when you were 12 years old? Uh, what was that like and, and why did you make that decision? <laughs> yeah, so... I was, uh, I, was, I was intensely bored in school, and I was one of those kids who, you know, in reading class, we'd be assigned to read a chapter a week, and I'd read the whole book in that week, and then I would get, uh, I would get reprimanded in class for reading other things during class because I was, I was bored. And so one of my friends started homeschooling, and I thought, that sounded amazing. You just spend all day learning about whatever you want to learn about. And so I, I talked my parents into letting me give it a shot. I think in their minds, they're like, well, he's a smart kid. He's not going to fall too far behind if he ends up just screwing around all day. We'll just throw him back in school. Uh, <laughs> so we'll just run an experiment here. That, I mean, that was it really wasn't anything more complex than that. That's pretty awesome that you had parents that were that open to trying something very, very alternative. Yeah, my dad's a total hippie. <laughs> yeah, well, so what's your mom like? Is she equally equal parts hippie or yeah. is there kind of a, a good uh, balance there? Yes, she's definitely she's definitely like much more of the balance. Yeah, absolutely, uh, dude. That's hilarious. My my uh, parental complex is is very similar with my dad kind of being a little bit more hippie and out there, and my mom being very much more. You know, did you get straight A's? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yin and yang. Gotta have that balance. My mom was the one who's like, no, you should do chores. Chores will teach you valuable lessons. 
My dad was like, chores? What, is, what valuable lessons do you learn cleaning toilets? Go build something. Go create something. Go learn something. <laughs> Well, that sounds like you were a very directed 12-year-old. I was I was doing comic books in class. So the fact that you had the uh, wherewithal to think about uh, launching what you launched, uh, could, could you maybe tell us how you came up with the idea for what became MuggleNet? Yeah, so I didn't really come up with an idea. I just uh, just started making stuff, and then it just kind of happened. So basically, I, I started creating – I came across a free web page maker, and I thought it would be fun to make a website. So I started making a bunch of crappy websites about things I wasn't that into, like a Simpsons website, a golf website. It was called Extreme Golf with an X and no E, so I thought it was super cool. Um, and then I, I wasn't really passionate about any of them to put in enough time to make them good. And so I, but then I read Harry Potter and I got really obsessed with it. And then bam, it was like the stars, you know, this clouds parted, the sun shined through. And I suddenly found enough motivation to start working on it for eight hours a day. And turns out if you work on anything, uh, any passion project for eight hours a day over an extended period of years, it will probably eventually not suck. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> that's, I mean, probably an oversimplification of what happened, but I actually love that <laughs> because I think uh, so many people, uh, especially in, in what we do with Verge, you know, we were a community of 5,000 plus tech entrepreneurs, developers and investors, and, and we've got people that will be kind of interested in that first time entrepreneurship, um, you know, jumping in, how do I make this happen? And uh, it's as simple as like finding that thing you're willing to put eight hours a day, you know, eight plus hours a day into for an extended period of time. And, and I think that last part of extended period of time is so key. How long was it before MuggleNet really popped? It, it depends what you mean by pop. Like it was always growing because it, like within about a month of starting, I, I was like, there was like nobody coming to the site. And I was like, well, this is really pointless to make this thing if no one's going to come to it. So how do I get people to come to it? So I went and I just looked at all the other Harry Potter sites and what they were doing. And I saw that some of them had these things called affiliates where they would link to each other. And I was like, oh, that's pretty, that seems pretty straightforward. They just link to each other. And then I went and I emailed every single Harry Potter webmaster on the entire internet. And I do mean all of them. And, I <laughs> and there was no search engines really back then. So it was like me just clicking on links like for hours and hours and hours. I met and then sending canned emails to them. Um, and so within a month, people started to show up at the site. And then things started to, to take off from there. Um, that being said, it grew steadily for years. So I didn't actually like start bringing on people to help me. Um, but eventually grew the, grew the size of the team to about 120 Um but didn't really start bringing people on um, until I until about a you know uh, probably like six months to a year after I started. You say there's kind of like a steady growth, and it didn't have that sort of pop, which is kind of contradictory to what I would have assumed given your expertise in virality. Uh, but it sounds like you were probably just gradually learning along the way. What not only is good content, but how do you get people to see that content? Yeah, I, I certainly didn't. I didn't know anything about reality at the time. I never even heard of the word, um, and I, I learned painfully slowly. Uh, you know, like one of my favorite quotes is the Einstein quote: "I have no special talents. I am merely passionately curious." And that's really what it was. So <clears throat> I wasn't doing anything with reality in the early days, but then I just kind of like kept studying what patterns were working with content, what patterns weren't, and then um, got better at it over time. And then started to formulate more theories around how to systematize reality. So yeah, there's definitely no overnight success with MuggleNet. Definitely not. Well, so set the scene for me here, Emerson, because uh, you know you're not in school. You're spending eight plus hours a day on MuggleNet, which probably didn't make money in the early days. Is that right? Correct. Okay, so you're working on this this hobby site. Your parents have given you free reign to follow your passion. Uh, where are you? Are you in your your bedroom? Are you in an office at home? Uh, are you at the library? What? Where are you building this empire from? 
<laughs> I was in the living room. My mom always jokes that she only ever saw the back of my head through my adolescence. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. We had one computer. Everyone shared the one computer, and I was basically just hogging the computer. <laughs> that that's awesome for you I, i'm sure your family uh felt otherwise at the time yeah i mean probably at times i'm sure but in general my my, they, my parents were just so supportive and they just loved to see that i was so passionate about this thing and i was working on it they didn't really understand what it was or what it meant um but they certainly understood what it was and what it meant when we got our like the first check that came in for like six thousand dollars <laughs> and how far into the project were you when that check came in the mail um that was probably like maybe a year and a half after I started. Oh, wow. Wow, so so really kind I of just- I couldn't make money before then. I didn't think that was like a thing that people actually did. I was just, I, I just thought it was like people made websites for fun. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Well, I mean, and, and they do. And it's fun when they make money too, right? I, that's exactly what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> very cool. Well, it, it sounds like you were kind of very self-taught. You're, you're testing, you're looking at other things and what's working online. Uh, were there any mentors that you came across in those first couple of years um, that that really helped you think about opening this up into a business? Yeah, I, I didn't know anybody. I was in, I was in rural Indiana. I was in, I was surrounded by two hundred and seventy degree cornfields. Like literally, my house was surrounded by two hundred seventy degrees of cornfields. Um, I had zero network whatsoever outside of like the online friends that I was making with all these other Harry Potter webmasters. And so, but I did have significant mentorship. My mentorship though was was highly unusual. Um, because even though my, my parents pretty much did, they stayed out of my way and let me study whatever I wanted. But one thing they did do, which was really smart was they had me read four short biographies of successful people every day. And this just shattered my little 12 year old brain into about 10,000 pieces. And, and it really laid the foundation for everything that came after. Cause I started thinking really big and I decided that I wanted to change the world and I wanted to do it on a massive scale. And, and I just began further immersing myself into the lives of people who had already changed the world. Uh, to see what patterns I could extract from their experiences. And <clears throat> I learned a tremendous amount uh, from them living their lives vicariously. You know, one of my all-time favorite quotes is that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Absolutely. Because I was spending several hours a day, um, you know, living vicariously as people who change the world, you, you know, you start to think like, I mean, I can change the world. I mean, these people all change the world. Why couldn't I change the world? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so you're literally reading four Bio full length biographies or are these no, like magazine length biographies? What are they? Magazine length biographies. Oh, uh, okay, okay. And were these curated by your parents or were these, you know, you can read whatever bios you want, you've just got to go and find four a day? Yeah, in my parents' infinite wisdom, they realized the merits of letting me select the biographies myself. So they just said, I can read anyone's that I want uh, as long as they're four. So in the beginning, I read only, and I mean literally only, athlete biographies. Because at the time, I wanted to be the next Michael Jordan, and I played a lot of sports competitively as a kid growing up too. Well, and you're from uh, Indiana, man, like basketball yeah. capital of the world. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> okay, so a lot of sports ones. Uh, are there one or two bios that really stand out to you now as, as formative? in those early years? Not really. Like I, I, I it sounds like narrative wise, like there should have been, um, Not necessarily. I people, yeah, I just learned so much about so many different people, so many different walks of life. I kind of wanted to do everything and experience everything. At one point I decided I wanted to learn everything there was to learn about the world. And so I decided to read the encyclopedia, but I got like to a C like just a <laughs> letter a and then C and I was like, man, this shit is boring. Right. <laughs> I was like, I should go read other things instead. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and it, it gives you different perspectives. You know, even if you're not going to become a, a biochemist, you know, reading a bio about a biochemist 
uh, not to be too confusing about the prefix there, uh, but if you're reading a biography about a biochemist, uh, you know, seeing how they succeeded in their field obviously has direct implications to how you might succeed in your field or what you're doing. Totally. You see the same patterns coming up over and over and over again. Well, I think that's so important too, uh, especially in a world now where there's so much media and so much content being created. You could only pay attention to tech content uh, all day and it would fill up your entire time. So that, that sort of perspective of uh, at least what worked for you, which is that taking a little bit from a lot of different places kind of created this overarching um, sort of uh, paradigm or construct that allowed you to succeed in what you're doing. Absolutely. I, very much, very much so. Like I was conditioned genetically. I, I was obviously very blessed with whatever that freakish thing is that makes you, you know, be willing to get up early in the morning and like work hard on stuff with, with internal motivation. I have no idea where that came from, but man, am I glad that I, I got that. I got those genes, whatever they were. But the second part of it was, yeah, it was the environmental conditioning around all the biographies and all the reading and the learning, um, which laid like a, a foundation of knowledge and belief systems that made it so that I could actually just make these, set these very large goals for myself and actually have some, you know, somewhat of a realistic chance of hitting them. Well, you know, I think it's interesting you mentioned that, you know, biologically you're wired to jump out of bed in the morning and work on what you want to work on. But also do you think that, that maybe could be a little bit the environment that your parents created for you? You know, the fact that since yeah. the age of 12, you've basically been told, go work on what you want to work on. Go learn and play. Oh, 100%. It's definitely that, that combination of nature and nurture. Yeah. Absolutely, man. Well, that that is a that is such a cool, uh, cool and interesting background. I, I had no idea uh, that that was the case for you. I, I know you eventually got on a pattern, or perhaps this is internet legend, uh, but that you were reading <laughs> one nonfiction book a day. That's correct. How did how did you choose those books, and at what point during your career did you start picking up that habit? So that was, uh, so as far as, as far as my homeschool, most of what I learned, I learned through MuggleNet. And you know, the, the great thing about having a business is that it kind of forced you to learn everything else out of necessity. Like I didn't know anything about accounting, but I certainly needed to learn something about accounting because otherwise I wouldn't know where my money was and how to get it and so on. Um, and kind of one skill set for the next. But I also did things like I watched like a quarter of all the biographies, a quarter of all like the documentaries in the local, local library and all these other like random source information, read a lot of fiction, tons of fiction as a kid. And then when I was in college, so I decided, I, so, so the quick pretext is that I, I decided that I want to change the world. I want to do it on a big scale, um, study these patterns, um, got really interested in virality as a concept because virality to me felt like a superpower. And if you could make things go viral, you could, um, you could do anything, right? You could tip elections and you could overthrow dictators and you could start movements. You could revolutionize entire industries. And so I had this kind of like burning obsession to understand like why things go viral. And then Eventually, I decided to go to college uh, for fun, which is not a good reason. I got bored very quickly, very predictably, and I was going to drop out and start another business. Before I did, I wanted to go really big with the next one. I wanted to identify a model that would maximize my probability of getting to a billion by the time I was 30. Now, I was naive. I knew the odds of that happening were infinitesimally small, but I figured, well, you know, statistically speaking, I'll probably get three-ish swings at this, so how do I maximize the probability of one of those swings connecting? So I, I wanted to set off on this epic quest. I was like, okay, before I start my next business, I want to be able to connect dots and see patterns between all these different disciplines and industries. Um, I want you to learn everything, right? That was the kind of general goal. Well, so, well and let me let me stop you right there, Emerson, because I I want to get clarity on something because uh, you you kind of moved on from MuggleNet and you start thinking about how can I do the next thing, but but bigger. And when you say you wanted to get to a billion, are you talking about get to a billion dollars, a billion users, um, a billion downloads? What what is that? term billion mean to you? 
Yeah, it was a it was a vague goal. It was like a billion dollars, but you know, it's not that I've ever I haven't really cared about money like for for money's sake, but just as like a tool for influence to create more impact. So anyway, so I set up on this quest, set a goal of reading one nonfiction book every day until graduation. So it's books about everything: business, politics, psychology, economics, technology, science, uh, with a very heavy overall concentration on studying the human mind, like neuroscience, cognitive psychology, behavioral science. Because I figure the human mind is constant in everything. If you understand how people and why people do what they do, then you understand like half of everything else. Um, but it wasn't just reading books. It was going through SEC filings, 10Ks, research, abstracts, textbooks. It was studying thousands of different companies, looking for patterns. Like what do successful companies do differently than unsuccessful companies? It was studying industries, everything from natural gas wholesaling to drywall contracting. Again, looking for patterns. And the patterns in industry structure is like so interesting and overwhelming. Like I get to what I can tell with any industry, like, okay, take this particular industry, given these characteristics, it's almost certainly going to end up being an oligopoly. The, the market leader will have this much share. The, the second will have this much share and margins usually end up being about here. And it just clarifies everything that happens in business, um, down to its base patterns. But anyway, it was actually a three part process. So there was reading, reviewing and rehearsing because I figured it was a waste of time to learn stuff. You couldn't remember the stuff and apply this stuff in relevant situations. So, to maximize my attention, I spent the first six months doing a deep dive into the neuroscience of learning and memory, because I believe learning how to learn is literally the most important skill that you could possibly develop, and it provides an exponential return on the time you invest in it, that it's like wishing for more wishes. And I ended up building out different spaced repetition schedules where I would review everything that I wanted to remember on a schedule of a day later, a week later, a month later, and then every six months in perpetuity. And then the third part of the process was rehearsal. Again, how do you practice applying this information in relevant situations? It's not as simple as in, you know, if, if you're Kobe, you just go to the gym and shoot 800 jumpers a day. Um, so I organized all the information into frameworks to contextualize it. So I'd have a persuasion framework, a negotiation framework, an innovation framework, et cetera. So for example, with negotiation, the way I'd practice negotiation is I go through like a dozen books, um, take the 15 best ideas, like tactics, techniques, strategies, device, put them into mnemonic devices like acronyms. So I could remember them in actual negotiations and then I would, uh, I would get vicarious experience. So I would like replay past negotiations in my head using the strategies. I play fictional negotiations out in my head using the strategies. So for example, I'd be watching an episode of the West wing. I would see two heads of state negotiating and I'd hit pause and I would just replay the, the negotiation out in my head from both their perspectives, applying each of those different strategies in turn. Again, all this is designed to maximize the probability that when I'm in an actual negotiation, I actually think to apply those tactics. And I would, I, I believe that that the time that I've spent studying and practicing negotiation, which has probably been, and when I say practicing, I mean like this kind of practice, um, I've probably invested maybe 150 hours in it, and I do believe it's been worth eight figures to me. So it's had, a, like if you take the, hour, the hourly rate on that, the ROI is just crazy, crazy, crazy high. And I believe that's true for most people too. Like one of the highest ROI things you could possibly do is to study negotiation. But a really big breakthrough for me came through when I was studying innovation. The patterns of innovation are super interesting. People think of it's like this bolt from the blue, you know, lightning strike that hits you. And that, that's what it feels like, but that's not how it actually really works. Um, so the way that I, I practiced innovating was I, again, same thing with a bunch of books, uh, organize all the different types of business models into mnemonic devices, um, acronyms. And then I would go to Walmart <laughs> and I would go from product to product to product on the shelves and take every product and just practice applying different business models to that product. So for example, like right now I'm, I'm sitting in front of a whiteboard. So I take something like dry erase markers, just go like luxury, long tail, unused capacity, et cetera. Like luxury. Could I just sell a way more expensive dry erase marker to people with enough disposable income, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I was just practicing applying all these ideas. And that was what led to kind of a series of breakthrough moments, which led to the creation of the company. Now, were these all, um, when you're rehearsing this, you know, it, it's fascinating because this is exactly what it takes 
to actually learn something and integrate it into your being and the way you operate. Is this something that you were doing naturally and in an impromptu way? Or were you literally scheduling time? You know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm gonna go to Walmart and do my ideation game. And Tuesday and Thursday, I'm gonna run through scenarios and watch the West Wing and, and other scenarios where there's negotiations. Or was it just sort of like, I'm gonna kind of live my life and the way I'm gonna to choose to live my life is when I see an opportunity to apply a framework that I've studied and recorded, uh, I'm, just, I'm gonna apply that in that scenario or some mix of both. <clears throat> So yeah, what usually happens for me is I get really motivated, like with this, these innovation patterns, like Walmart, I get really motivated for a period of time. It could be like hours, days, weeks, or months, and I'll do it all the time. Sometimes I'll schedule it, sometimes I'll do it unscheduled, and then I'll just lose interest and then like not do it again. Uh, or like only do it when it's relevant and practical. So really, you're, you're all taking advantage of the fact that you're extremely interested and intrigued in something, and during that time, you're doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on that specific skill and just sort of obsessing over it until it becomes boring to you and you move on to the next thing. Exactly. And then um, if it's something I consider to be a valuable skill for the future, I'll still, you know, that, that framework, like the negotiation framework, the way that I use that framework now is that whenever I have it, a lot of, you know, most of it's intuitive now and I don't even think about it. It just happens because I've had so much practice. But in the early days when I was like still kind of like an awkward teenager and didn't really know how to handle these you know, negotiations with like real adults and stuff, I would always like, you know, I would just like pull out my, my framework and then, um, I would try to negotiate not over the phone or in person. I would try to negotiate over email so I could actually like take my time and think through the implications of it and apply each of these strategies. Um, but now I can actually just do it on the fly. So that's interesting because I imagine your age, especially in the early days, um, because this is going to be before there were a lot of young uh, CEOs and it was just kind of well known that you don't actually have to be 30, 40 years old to start a company. Uh, mm -hmm. And that actually sometimes age can be a benefit to starting a technology driven business. Uh, but, you know, we all know some of like the classic um, negotiation techniques, but are there specific ones that uh, played well for you, either tactics or strategies uh, that kind of helped compensate for being a little bit younger in those scenarios? Yeah. So, I mean, in the early days, no one really knew how, I mean, people guessed how old I was because, uh, you know, they could hear my voice, but like, I, I didn't, I, I kept it like a, a fiercely guarded secret in, in the earliest days, um, you know, for that very same reason. Um, but from a negotiation perspective, like basically there's, there's, uh, there's, there's two strategies that I consider to be by far the two most important strategies in negotiation. The first one is, always ask for more than you expect to get. Most people are terrible negotiators because they are just too um, afraid of what'll happen if they ask for more, and so they don't even try. And they leave, over the course of their life, most people, I would argue, from an earnings potential perspective, most um, white collar workers anyway, who actually have um, some flexibility in this regard, they leave on the table hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars because they were just too afraid to even ask. Um, so that's one, and the second one is that you have to make sure that you always project walk away power. The second that the other person knows that you can't walk away, you're done. Like you're completely done from a negotiation perspective. So uh, you have to make sure that even if you can't walk away, that they don't know that. <laughs> that's that's those are both really good pieces of advice. Do, do you have any advice on getting the courage to ask for a bigger number than you think is reasonable, or that you that you actually need at that moment? Yes, I do. Okay, so I'm obsessed with this. So as you, as you can probably guess, like I love to find shortcuts so that you can condense like a tremendous amount of learning into the shortest period of time possible. And I think the fastest way to develop this kind of courage is through um, a series of exercises called comfort zone challenges. So an example of a comfort zone challenge is uh, one called the coffee shop 
challenge. The coffee shop challenge is an idea that I got from a friend of mine, Noah Kagan. So what he would do is he would go into coffee shops and ask for a 10% discount every time that he would order coffee. And the reason why he would do that is because it is uncomfortable. That is it. There's no other reason why. It's just uncomfortable. And so if you do things like that, that are deliberately uncomfortable, you change your identity. And that's what matters. Because you start to think of, like, instead of like, ooh, something's uncomfortable, I should avoid it, you start to think, ooh, something's uncomfortable, I should seek it out. And then when you get stuck in other situations later that are uncomfortable, you're like, oh, this is bad because it's uncomfortable. But instead, you reframe it as like, oh, this is good that it's uncomfortable, and you just get tougher faster. So other examples. So like my 16-year-old brother comes and visits me in Chicago, and we're walking around city streets, and he's a 16-year-old, so obviously he's a total wuss, and he's afraid of everything. Uh, and so what I do is I give him challenges like, okay, Drew, I want you to stop the next person on the street and I want you to ask them if they've seen the Muffin Man. And just really uncomfortable things like that, right? And then we scale it up until eventually he's screaming at the top of his lungs really horrific and embarrassing things that I won't share here. Um, <laughs> another example, this one, here's an example. So when I, 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 I've mentioned this a few times in a couple talks that I've given. And the way they illustrate it in the talks is I actually lay down on stage for 30 seconds. Yeah. In the middle of my keynote, I'll just lay down on stage for 30 seconds because it's uncomfortable. It's I great. love that. <laughs> No, I, I love that. I think that's great. One of, one of my favorite uh, exercises, it, it's a little bit more of, of a failure exercise, but it's in the same vein uh, as by a friend of mine, Julian Smith. He wrote the book, The Flinch, which I think yeah, is actually- Yeah, I actually know Julian. He's great. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. And what he's doing with Breather right now is, is pretty incredible. Uh, but the his book, The Flinch, I think that he wrote with Seth Godin. Um, one of the exercises is to, when you pour your hot cup of coffee in the morning, and you, you've got it and you're gonna take that first sip. Instead, take it, hold it with an outstretched arm and let it fall onto the ground. Now, obviously this should probably be in your kitchen, not in a restaurant or a <laughs> coffee shop. But uh, the idea being, you know, obviously that's uncomfortable, but you're gonna clean it up, two, three minutes, you're gonna have everything cleaned up, you can pour yourself another cup of coffee and you're gonna realize that taking that uh, step of just getting a little bit uncomfortable and not fearing the failure of having to clean it up is going to show you one that you can be in an uncomfortable situation and get through it but two the repercussions of something failing are not that high you're just gonna have your coffee mm -hmm. five ten minutes later i love it me too i i, I did that once and uh, i promised my girlfriend i wouldn't do it again <laughs> yeah, the key is to find the comfort zone challenges that don't inconvenience the other people around you too much. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. I like the lying down on stage one though. That's that's a good idea. I'm, I'm gonna have to try that out on the next talk. It creates quite the impression. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and and I I think it kind of plays into your own persona and, and personal brand. Not that you're even doing that intentionally, uh, but that is that you kind of create your own path. You're not afraid to uh, create your own. Uh, schooling system. You're not afraid to create your own uh, algorithm for taking content viral. Um, and so you're not afraid to take the risk of laying down on stage because you know what? This is Emerson. He just does things differently. <laughs> That's why my first, my first dream profession was to become a lawyer because my parent, one of my parents' friends when I was a little kid was like, you're so good at arguing, you'd make a great lawyer. And I, she was totally not complimenting me at all. She was frustrated because I was arguing with her on things that kids are just argue with her about. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm gonna become a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I'm glad that you decided to do what you ended up doing because, <laughs> because uh, I'm very fascinated with, with DOS and I, I know some of the early days of that kind of started with obviously MuggleNet and then OMG Facts, which is a, a social brand online that shares uh, very interesting facts from all over the, the world. Um, but could you talk a little bit about what you're doing with Dose now and why this is the thing you've decided to grow 
um, to, to the number of employees that you have right now and the reach that you have with 200 billion views per month? Yeah, I'm sorry, so, I, I said billion. I meant million, which is still an impressive number. <laughs> Only about a thousand times less impressive than billions, but, but <laughs> I agree. It's, we, we did okay there. Uh, yeah, you're, so, you're on your way. Yeah. So, so yeah. So media is something I've been fascinated with my whole life. I actually, I've gone, I went through phases early on where I was like, no, I'm going to go start a hedge fund. And then I, I spent like 18 months studying patterns and building trading models. I was like, you know, this is not nearly as, as fun and doesn't create nearly as much impact. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go back into media. Um, so for, for, for the longest time, what I wanted to build was, I basically wanted to build a virality machine. Like I wanted to build a system um, that would be able to create virality, um, you know, systematically. And so that, that's been kind of like my, my, my lifelong, uh, you know, product ambition. And, and really the growth of Dose has been just a function of us getting closer to that elusive goal of creating that virality machine. And I think back on things I used to think about virality even a year ago or two years ago, and I think, man, I didn't know anything back then. But even what I did know still put me as you know, one of the most knowledgeable people in the world on that topic. Um, and so the more resources that we get, obviously, the more things we can test. And it's just fun, and it's interesting, and we're learning so much, and the industry is changing so quickly. Um, so DOS, DOS is just is the current manifestation of that. Um, at the end of the day, what does that mean? What does a virality machine mean? Well, it just means a process. It means that there's, there's a process of um, creating content that resonates. Because that's all, when we say virality, that's all we mean. We mean content that resonates um, and that makes people want to share it with other people. And that's fundamentally what we do every single day. We just try to get better and better and better at the art and science of creating that, that deeply resonant content um, that introduces those fresh ideas and perspectives for our audience. Can you talk to me about the science of it, because I would imagine, uh, given what I know about you now and the, the way you uh, devour knowledge and then go about researching and applying, I imagine you have some frameworks. What is sort of the science behind the virality? So there's a bunch of things people think about with virality that aren't very useful or helpful, um, but are like common wisdom, like um, what emotions tend to work better and things like that. Um, for the record, because most people are interested in that, positive emotions tend to work better than negative emotions. People basically share for one of two reasons. Either we share because we the, the content triggered all the feels and we have to share those feels with other people. That's where positive content tends to work better. Um, or we share because we want to look cool. This is, of course, the reason why nobody shares porn. <laughs> so, uh, so that's at the highest level, right? Cute animals, humor, nostalgia, these are just functions of like, we want to project a certain image of ourselves out to the world. Positive content projects a better image of ourselves out to the world versus being like cynical and bitter. Um, nobody really wants to be friends with people who are cynical and bitter. So that's why we're, we're more prone to sharing that kind of positive content. Okay, back to the science. Really, at the end of the day, what, what virality is about that most people don't understand is it's, it's about how fast, just like a startup, right? A startup is like you come with this idea and you iterate quickly to try to get to product market fit. And then once you get to product market fit, you, you scale. Um, virality is very much the same way. You try a bunch of stuff. We call them at-bats, right? The more at-bats that you get, the more likely you are to hit a home run. But it's not just about getting at-bats because if you're a terrible hitter, you know, if you're blind and, and facing the wrong way, then it doesn't matter. You're never going to hit a home run, right? Um, but if you're, if your batting average is high and you get enough at-bats, you maximize the probability of hitting a home run. And so we just focus on that formula. Like how do we get more at-bats and or how do we increase our batting average? Well, we increase our batting average through, through data. Uh, we, we spend a considerable amount of time uh, focused on um, improving our apparatus and machinery for how do we test more rapidly um, and how do we test with higher degrees of confidence. And what tools are you using for that right now? 
if there were like two or three tools that are the most important for what you do, what would those be? Um, internal tools and Facebook. Nice. Good answer. It's amazing. Facebook is like the greatest tool ever created at testing virality. It, it is the holy grail. I, and I'm just now getting into testing more uh, with, with Facebook. So I'm, I'm definitely eager to uh, get more of your perspective on the science of that. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Like Facebook was my first petri dish years ago. When I, I So what happened was I kind of stumbled across a um, – when I was studying innovation theories – um, certain patterns that I, I thought might be exploitable with online content, which sounds bad, but it's not actually bad. It's just like things that work with reality. Um, and so I developed a series of simple algorithms designed to get Facebook pages to go viral and created dozens of pages that went from zero to millions of fans over a period of a few hours to a few days. And basically what I was doing was I was testing hundreds of different variables and seeing which variables correlated positively of virality. And then I just kept shortening the viral loop until I could tell within 20 seconds if a page was going to go viral. And then I was able to take the same ideas from Facebook to Twitter, got millions of followers on Twitter, YouTube, Tumblr, websites, apps, the same general strategies worked on every major platform. Obviously, they all have their peculiarities. Um, and then that was kind of like the early days of the company too, as we started making websites, we ended up building over 30 different websites that generated, uh, each of them independently in the millions of monthly unique visitors. Cause again, it's just the same patterns. It's at bats and batting average. So that's like the, the very quick kind of high level on how I think about it. That's different than how other people think about it. Um, it's, it's how you test the content, how you curate the content. Because most people think of reality as like something that just comes from scratch, but it rarely ever comes from scratch. Almost everything that you see that's viral has already been on the internet before. Um, and the same things go viral over and over and over again. Well, I, I know I could talk to you about this topic all day, Emerson, but um, if people wanted to learn more about virality, uh, what resources, whether your own or books that other people have written, uh, would you recommend that people go and check out? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, there's not, there's not a lot of great content out there on this topic, unfortunately. Um, you know, I, 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 although we are actually in the process of creating more content around this, so you know, stay tuned for that. We actually have a, a, a there's a book that's going to be coming out um, probably early next year, very much on this topic, like applied virality, how to actually use these strategies to make things viral instead of just like here's some studies on virality, which isn't all that helpful. It is interesting, but not all that helpful. Sure. Well, well, I'll definitely look forward to that. Um, if people want to follow you and what you're doing, where can they find you? company you can find us at dose.com or for my contact information etc cetera, etc cetera, uh you can go to emersonsparts.com awesome well you know i i did check out your website earlier and one of the things i found really interesting is that you and your wife uh launched something called give gives me hope uh, which is sort of like a chicken soup for the soul riff for the millennials mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about that project and why that has gotten your your passion before we sign off here yeah, so so I'm actually uh, so my my wife and my co-founder Gabby uh, is actually also a 12 year old entrepreneur. Awesome, it's crazy. Also, she's super cute. So I totally did jackpot there. Did you guys find <laughs> each other at 12? No, we didn't. We met at college, actually, of all the places. Oh, very um, cool. And what happened was we were so at this point, you know, been making all these Facebook pages and, and had this big social audience. We're like, okay, well. Um, we're both pathological optimists and we want to create positive impact in the world. So how can we apply what we've learned about reality to, um, to content, to positive content? And so this was around the same time that that website F my life, um, went viral and we're like, Hey, what if we did the opposite of that? <laughs> what if we did the positive <laughs> stories instead of cynical and negative stories? And that was kind of the inspiration for the site. I love it. And then, yeah, that site, I'm so proud of that site because the site ended up, we ended up spinning out, the site did so well that we ended up getting like thousands of letters from people saying that the stories on that website kept them from dropping out of school, 
saved their marriage, brought them back from the verge of suicide. I mean, it was getting recommended at suicide hotline prevention centers wow. to give people hope. And then we ended up spinning out an entire network of sites similar to it, positive content sites that collectively, including a site where people share their secrets, um, they got quite popular. And those sites generated um, about a half billion page views, which, uh, which I'm just so proud of. That's incredible. That's incredible. Well, congratulations on the progress with that. I, I love the focus on positive, uh, positive energy. Uh, you know, it's clearly been a pattern throughout your life, following the positive uh, emotions of, you know, intrigue, interest, uh, and sort of energy to obsess on things and then go from one thing to the next. Uh, and it, it's it's clear that that's sort of your uh, personal uh, energy, and that comes through in your company. So. I just want to say thanks for, for taking the time to talk to us a little bit. Uh, maybe we'll have to do a follow-up at some point in time to deep dive on virality, maybe sometime uh, when your book is about to come out. Sounds great. Love that. Love it, Emerson. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, before we sign off, uh, I just want to, wanted to give a quick shout-out to the Chicago tech community up there, which I know you're, you're a big part of. Um, could you maybe give us a 30-second pitch on why Chicago is the place you decided to call home? <laughs> um, so I, I'm from the Midwest. Midwest, you know, Chicago just has this magnetic pull from everyone in the Midwest. Uh, I have a bunch of family here, but Chicago is great. Um, cost of living is lower, like half as much as like SF or New York. Um, and you don't. And from an engineering perspective, although it's competitive for engineers, you don't have to compete with Google and uh, Facebook. <laughs> sure. <laughs> which is which is great from a cost of uh, doing business perspective. Absolutely, man. Well, I know you've built a great team there uh, and you've, you've probably got to get back to work and, and jump in there uh, with the team you're building at Dose. Uh, thanks again and uh, we'll be in touch soon. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you. Hey, it's your host, Matt Hunkler here again and just wanted to say thank you for tuning into this conversation with Emerson Sparts. Let's not let this be the end of the conversation. Definitely hit him up. He's just at Emerson Sparts on Twitter. Let him know you appreciated his conversation with us here on the Powder Keg Podcast. Let him know what questions you have. He is super engaged, always obviously interested in learning more and sharing some of his learning. So make sure you hit him up. Check out his media properties at Dose on Twitter or Dose.com. That's the website, of course. And then you've got OMGFacts.com, MuggleNet. You can find all of that online. Make sure you check that out because it's really amazing what he's built there. Uh, and what he continues to build with his other media properties will be a very interesting guy to continue to follow. Thanks for tuning in. Definitely uh, find those show notes on powderkeg.co and just find the uh, show notes for this episode, episode 18, with the full transcript, all the links, and everything you need to keep the conversation going and continue the learning. I just wanted to remind you real quick that Powder Keg is presented by Verge, which is a network of local communities with global reach for tech entrepreneurs, investors, and top talent growing companies beyond Silicon Valley. We have a ton of free resources for starting and growing your business at vergehq.com. We also host several events every month around the country. So check us out and see where we're at. I would love to link up with you in person, learn a little bit more about what you're working on and how we can help. So again, that's vergehq.com. And of course, you can always find me on Twitter and Instagram at Hunkler. That's at H-U-N-C-K. 
L-E-R. I appreciate all of your feedback, all the conversation and dialogue there. Thank you so much for continuing to give great feedback, great ideas for future shows. And of course, let me know how I can help. I want to help you. I want to help your business. And I want to help make this podcast better and better so that, again, we're helping more and more people the more interviews we do, the more episodes we have. So thanks to everyone who has done that. And of course, thank you Thank you, thank you to everyone who has left us a review this past week and subscribed on iTunes. You can leave us your honest review by using this link, powderkeg.co slash iTunes. Please give us a subscribe while you're at it and we'll be forever indebted to you because it's your reviews, it's your subscriptions and your feedback that help us get better and reach more people to build bigger and better businesses that really matter. Thank you so much for tuning in.